uh, Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 3. Someone's excited to be turning to the Gospel of Mark. That should be our attitude indeed. Mark chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 21. That's page 838 if you're using the Bible, uh, the Bible there in, in your pew. Uh, as we're journeying here with Jesus, uh, we've come through a section where he has been uh, under a fair bit of antagonism uh, from the religious rulers uh, of the day. But we've also noticed that the, uh, the crowds uh, keep coming, surrounding Jesus. And last time at the uh, end of verse 12, we noticed that even the... Uh, even the demons can teach us something because they know who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God. Uh, they fall down before him in fear uh, and in anger. Uh, we fall down before him in praise uh, and adoration. And so we pick up the, uh, the story here in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, at verse uh, 13. Uh, this is the ever-living, ever-abiding uh, word of the living God. And he, that is Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we come again to the scripture uh, and to this passage in the gospel of Mark, oh Lord, how we, how we know and then believe and trust uh, that every uh, word uh, that you have spoken is to be our, our food, is bread to us, and that all scripture is God-breathed. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work that conviction in us, first of all, this morning as we come to your word. And then, Lord, by your spirit, that uh, with that conviction in our hearts, uh, you would teach us today what you would have us to learn uh, from this portion of Scripture uh, for your everlasting glory and for our eternal good. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in 1772, Anne Lee... A central figure in the Shakers uh, religious movement thought that she embodied all the perfections of God in female form and considered herself to be Christ's female counterpart. 200 years later, in 1972, Claude Vorillon, a French uh, professional test driver, former car journalist, became founder and leader of UFO religion, the Real movement. Realism teaches that life on Earth was scientifically created by a species of extraterrestrials, which they call Elohim. And he claimed he met an extraterrestrial humanoid in 1973 and that he became the Messiah. Young Myung Sook 
South Korean, was a member of the Unification Church in the 1970s. He believes he has come to finish the incomplete message and mission of Jesus Christ, asserting that he is the Messiah and he has the responsibility to save all mankind. And there are many more such folks. Surely uh, those folks are out of their mind. But what about Jesus? If you had grown up with Jesus as part of his family, uh, you would have some questions, I think. He was baptized by John the Baptist, and then, and then you heard rumors that there was a voice that came from heaven speaking about Jesus. There was also that time that he was missing for 40 days. In the wilderness, and his family were wondering where he was. He started to tell people that the kingdom was at hand and they needed to repent and believe. Uh, he was gathering followers, and crowds flocked to see him. He could hardly eat or sleep at times. There were stories of uh, Jesus causing a stir in the synagogue and people being uh, cleansed simply at the touch of his hand. And uh, There were stories even about about evil spirits and Jesus. Enough was enough. Something had to be done. If things kept going like they were, somebody was going to get hurt. It was time for Jesus to come home. The latest episode, uh, he was up on the mountain uh, organizing organizing a team of some sort in Mark 3.13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out uh, to preach. As Jesus goes up the mountain this morning, we want to notice a few things about these uh, disciples whom uh, Jesus has following him. First of all. Uh, Jesus' disciples that we notice here are gathered. Are First of all, they're called by Jesus uh, into fellowship with Jesus. Now, if you've been following along in the Gospel of Mark, you have noticed that it's becoming clear that the mission of Jesus uh, was not going to have the support of the religious leaders uh, of the day, the scribes and Pharisees. If Jesus was to have followers, and if Jesus were to have witnesses who would share in his mission... He would need to gather and train and send them out himself. So Jesus withdraws again uh, up the mountain uh, or mountainside or hill somewhere in the vicinity of Capernaum. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that uh, what Jesus did actually before he calls disciples to himself and his account of the same story. Uh, Luke tells us this. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his, he called his disciples. And so Jesus uh, goes up this mountain and he is in prayer all night. He's speaking with the Father. Uh, it would be great to know what was in this prayer. We don't know. We have one prayer of Jesus, in, at least in John 17, his high priestly prayer. But there's no record of this night of prayer. But after this night of prayer, the Bible says that he called to him... Uh, those whom he desired, and they came to him. 
That's important. He called to him, the Bible says, those whom he desired. Uh, in John 15, 16, Jesus will turn to the uh, apostles and tell them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you uh, to go out and preach the gospel. The emphasis even here in the calling of the disciples is on the sovereign will of Jesus. The choice of the disciples here, all his followers, and the appointment of the twelve apostles uh, has its origin uh, in the will and the purpose uh, and in the desire uh, of Jesus. This is a common theme throughout the scripture, uh, as you know, spoken of most beautifully perhaps in, in John, 1 John four ten, uh, where we read this. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or later in that same chapter, we love because he first uh, loved us. The Bible says uh, Jesus called to him those whom he, uh, he desired. In other words, it's by God's appointment, God's desire, that the call to discipleship, call to be a follower of Jesus, comes. Think about this, whether it's the external call to be a disciple, uh, that is, who determines where the gospel of Jesus goes? You know, who determines what nation will hear about Jesus? Who determines that uh, someone will come to, oh, whatever it was, West Jersey uh, 300, 400 years ago and plant seeds of the gospel? Or, or that it wouldn't come to other places? Who, who determines that? Uh, where missionaries actually end up and what tribe they go to and what tribe they don't go to? Who actually is in sovereign control of all these things? Well, the Lord is. And that the call to faith in Jesus comes to anybody externally and they hear it. And that's by his will and his desire. And it's also his, uh, his desire and his will and his sovereignty that determines that, that in, inner call, that internal call. That is the Holy Spirit drawing us to faith in Jesus. Why is it that some respond to the call of the gospel and others don't? It's because of the Holy Spirit's work. Because we would never come if it was left up to our own desire and our own will and our own purpose. So this call to discipleship, Mark tells this is at the sovereign pleasure and desire of God. Verse 14, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Now, this is interesting. When we think about Jesus uh, as the Son of God, we might think, well, you know, Jesus didn't need anybody. Jesus, Jesus would just did it all. No, he didn't. The Bible says in his plan and in his purpose, he wanted uh, those who would be close to him, who would share in, his, share in his mission. He appoints 12 that they might be, that they might be uh, with him. The significance of twelve apostles would not be missed, of course, on those who, who read this gospel or heard these words uh, for the first time. They would immediately think of the twelve tribes of Israel. They would think of the, the people of God, constituted as the people of God, out of the twelve tribes of Israel. And uh, uh, for, uh, for help with that, we think about the gospel of of Matthew, which reminds us of this, this close connection with the fact that God's people in the Old Covenant are the 12 tribes, and then there are 12 apostles at the beginning of Jesus' mission. We read this in Matthew 19, verse 27. 
Then Peter said to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there's 12 thrones. There's the apostles. You think about the book of uh, Revelation and you think about the new uh, Jerusalem, the city. Uh, coming down from heaven and how that is described with its 12 foundations and its 12 gates. And you'll remember these words from Revelation 21. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles uh, of the Lamb. And so Jesus here in the Gospel of Mark, as he calls these disciples whom he desired to himself and he appoints 12 of them, the 12, uh, everyone would know that this is this is the, the work of Jesus constituting for himself uh, a people, even as he constituted for himself a people of old. But more significant than the number is what they were called to. They were called to fellowship and communion in the presence of the Savior. They were to be uh, for himself. He called twelve, appointed twelve apostles, that they first of all might be uh, with him. He appointed them, he ordained them. The word is poieto, from which we get uh, poetry. It means simply to make or to constitute. He constituted these twelve to be with him, constantly with him. should really remind us of, um, uh, of Deuteronomy. You might remember this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where it's describing uh, the people of God. What characterizes the people of God? Well, this is what we read in Deuteronomy 6, 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down. And uh, when you rise. And so in the Old Testament, the people of God were characterized as being immersed in uh, when they lay down, when they stood up, when they went somewhere, immersed in, surrounded by, living in the environment of uh, the Word of God. They were bathed in it all their lives, close to the Word of God. And so Jesus comes and says, here's 12 apostles, I'm appointing you uh, that first of all, you would be with me and be in my presence, that you would learn from me. Uh, See how I live. See how I speak. See how I speak to Pharisees. See how I speak to women. See how I uh, see how I handle criticism. See how I uh, see how I draw upon the father's word that you would just soak in who I am. What I speak. And what I do. To be in his presence, friends, before you can be sent out in the Bible on a mission To witness to Jesus, to others, you must first of all be called to be be with him. You can't tell others about Jesus unless you have soaked yourself in his presence. So you've first been with him, and that's exactly what these disciples and apostles needed to do. They needed to spend some serious time in the presence of Jesus to know what it means to be a follower uh, of Jesus. This is what it's all about. Said one, to be much like Christ, be much 
with Christ. Said another, the power to live a new life depends upon daily communion with the living Lord. Said Martin Luther, a dungeon with Christ is a throne. And a throne without Christ is a hell. To believe in Christ, said A.W. Tozer, is to know the meaning of the words, as he is, so are we in this world. We accept his friends as our friends, his enemies as our enemies, his ways as our ways, his rejection as our rejection, his cross as our cross, his life as our life, and his future uh, as our future. Twelve, to be, to be with him. Friends, Christianity is not, first of all, doing something. Mm-hmm. Christianity is, first of all, being something. Namely, being with Christ. United to Him by faith. Listening, soaking in, being found at His feet. Remember that story about Mary and Martha? Uh, Jesus comes to their home. Martha's busy uh, getting getting all the service ready for, for Jesus to serve Him. And she complains to Jesus about... Uh, Jesus, you need to rebuke Mary. She's just sitting there at your feet, just listening to you. I got all sorts of work going on in the kitchen. You got to get the coffee and the tea. And he says, No, no, Martha, hold on. Uh, one thing is necessary, and uh, Mary has chosen the, the better part. It's not that Mary wasn't going to do any work, but when Jesus is speaking, what's the one thing necessary? Uh, put the coffee down and uh, listen to be. At its feet. And so, that's the first thing. Uh, Jesus calls disciples into fellowship. Second thing we find here is that he appoints them. He appoints them uh, unto service. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, verse 14, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority uh, to cast out demons. These apostles are sent ones. That's what the word apostle means to be sent uh, with Jesus uh, for the purpose of a mission. That is, uh, to be representatives of Jesus, his ambassadors in the world. So you're getting the picture here. Soak in time with Jesus. And then Jesus says, you're you're also those who are going to represent me in the world. Not of your own strength or anything like that. No, you first soaked in what it means to be united to me by faith, traveling with me, learning from me, loving me, knowing my love for you. But then you are meant to be a representative in the world. So these twelve will be sent out to preach. It is to herald the message of Jesus. What was that message? Well, Mark 1, 14, 15. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. They would go out with that message. And to do so, they would go out with the delegated authority, exousia in the Greek, the delegated authority of Jesus. They go in his name as his witnesses. Now, don't miss this. Those whom Jesus has chosen and appointed and sent have a very specific purpose to represent their master in both word and deed, right? To both speak his message uh, and to live out uh, his, uh, his, his calling, his mission for them before the world of who they are called to be. Now, for these apostles, that included the authority, as we will see in the Gospels, uh, to cast out demons. Jesus is the one 
uh, who has the power, but the apostles serve in his name and they are delegated specifically by Jesus uh, as the twelve who will represent him also in this way. That their, uh, their deeds will testify to the fact that they belong to Jesus. They're there by his power, by his authority. And he is at work through them. And that's the twelve apostles. Now, later in John 17, Jesus is praying for all his people, uh, for all those who would uh, come to believe in him. Uh, you know that wonderful prayer. Uh, and as part of that prayer, as Jesus is praying for his people, uh, he, says, uh, he says something pretty amazing there in John 17, verse 16. This is what he says. He speaks, he's speaking about his disciples now. Everybody who will come to hear in Jesus through the gospel now. Every disciple. They, he says, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. He's talking about you and me now, if you're a believer in Jesus. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says this. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so Jesus sends out not only the apostles here with that specific calling, uh, but he also sends out indeed all his people. That we might indeed testify to him. No, we're not one of the twelve. That is, those given authority over demons or the ability to work signs and wonders. We're not witnesses who are with Jesus uh, from his baptism uh, all the way to his resurrection. That's what the Bible says. That is the uh, qualification for an apostle. Somebody who actually walked with him in his earthly life and was a witness to his resurrection. Those are the twelve. And that's why in the book of Acts... After Judas has fallen away, the Bible says, well, who are we going to get to fill this role of an apostle? And and the church says there's two folks who can meet this requirement. And then they end up uh, calling uh, one to fill that role. These were the twelve who could work signs and wonders. But we are still uh, the sent ones. We are not the foundation of the church. That is the twelve apostles. But we are still those who are sent. That is those who are called to represent Jesus. Witness to Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, his power, his glory, and his beauty uh, today. And we're also those who are called to indeed proclaim the good news about Jesus. Having been with him. We are sent out by him. How do we know this? Well, you'll remember in the book of Acts, there's a great persecution that breaks out against the church uh, in Acts chapter 8. And this is what we read. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Listen carefully. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. They were all scattered all over the land, the Bible says, except the apostles. And then a few verses later it says this, Now those who were scattered, (laughs) that is, except the apostles, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So, yes, there are twelve apostles. Uh, No one can replace them, those who are with Jesus, witness of his resurrection, given that power and authority to work miracles to cast out demons. But all are sent ones in the sense of we have been with Jesus, we are his church, and we are therefore sent out to represent him, to proclaim him, uh, and indeed to bear fruit in our lives uh, of his deeds and his works within us. 
And it's called the fruit of the Spirit, of course, that testifies that we belong to Him. This is the wonderful calling uh, of what it means to be a disciple. Said Thomas Brooks, a Puritan, a Christian's life, think about this, a Christian's life, where it is represented, a Christian's life should be nothing but a visible representation of Christ. Um, said another, witnessing is not an effort. You know, it's not something you put on your calendar, oh, I need to be a witness today. Witnessing is not an effort, said one. It is an overspill. <laughs> you know, you're, you're always witnessing because whatever you are inside is always bubbling up out of your mouth and has lived through your hands and where you go. You are always witnessing. It's the overspill of your life. You're representing someone. The Christian, said one, is the visual aid. Listen to this. The Christian is the visual aid which, which God brings onto the stage when he begins to speak to an unconverted person. So when the Holy Spirit's working in the life of an unbeliever, what God does usually is he takes a Christian and brings that Christian into that person's life and says to that person, this is what being a Christian is all about. And that's you and I. In the lives of all the folks God's placed in your life who are not a Christian. God brings you into their life and he says, look, unbeliever, this is what it means to, for someone to have been with Christ and to know Christ and to love Christ. This is exhibit, exhibit A. Said D.L. Moody, a Christian, a Christian, he said, is the world's Bible. And some of them said Moody need revising. Uh, Yeah. I think uh, he, knew, he knew what he was talking about there. We all need, we all need revising at times. Well, appointed unto service. Well, what kind of folks, what kind of folks did Jesus uh, appoint uh, to his service? Well, we have the list here. We know, of course, more about some than others. We know Peter, of course. Peter means uh, rock. Notice that the Bible says this is a name that was given to, given to Simon uh, by Jesus himself. Verse 16, he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. It actually means whom he, 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 he placed upon him the name Peter. That is rock. Uh, one day, yeah, one day, uh, Simon would be a rock-like man. He'd be dependable. He'd be immovable. Uh, he, in the book of Acts, uh, will show himself to be equal to all the emergencies, all the crises of life. He will stand firm for the faith, but um, often he wouldn't. Before Pentecost, uh, he was weak and failing. Um, he would often fail in his walk with the Lord. He'd be doubting. He'd be uh, impetuous. Uh, and perhaps you've said to yourself uh, that something just kind of... Uh, you ever said this? Something just kind of peters out. That's why you say that. That's where that came from. I don't like it. That's my name. Uh, <laughs> but that's why you say it. Because Peter has the reputation of... Well, he just kind of fails in the end. Kind of peters out. Peter did. But not forever. One day, one day, in fact, he would be exactly the name and reflect and represent exactly the name that Jesus placed upon him. James and John, Jesus gave the name Boanerges, the sons of thunder. These are the ones who, when the gospel was not received in Samaria, James and John said to said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven 
They're also the ones who, with their mother, came to Jesus and said, Jesus, when, when we get to heaven, boy, can we be on the right and on the left? Um, sons of thunder can also mean sons of, sons of tumult. Uh, James would be the first uh, apostle recorded to be martyred in Acts 12 when Herod puts him to death by the sword. This son of thunder. John, of course, would be the one who gives us the book of Revelation. In the Greek Orthodox Church, John is called Brontophonus. That is the thunder voiced. And he, of course, gives us several of the books of the Bible. Well, we have Andrew, Simon's brother, and Philip. Bartholomew, also named Nathaniel. Elsewhere, we have Matthew, uh, who's already been introduced to us in this book, is Levi, the tax collector that nobody liked. Thomas, uh, known as the twin, uh, Thomas, who the Bible also tells us doubted at times, and James, the son of Alphaeus, we hardly read ever, ever more of him. Thaddeus goes also by the name of Judas. And then, of course, we have Simon, uh, the zealot, writes one. No name is more striking in this list than that of Simon, the zealot. For to none of the twelve could the contrast be so vivid between their former and their new position. What revolution of thought and heart could be greater than that which had thus changed into a follower of Jesus, one of the fierce war party of the day? That's what it meant to be a zealot, which looked on the presence of Rome in the Holy Land as treason against the majesty of Jehovah, a party who were fanatical in their Jewish strictures and inclusiveness. So this is, you know, all this is who I desire, says Jesus. I want Simon the zealot, who's coming out of this this uh, life of this fierce antagonism to Rome. And, but perhaps he's not the most striking of this. Whom the Bible says Jesus called whom he desired to be with him. Because verse 19 says, and Judas Iscariot. Who betrayed him? I said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute here. Ah, Iscariot is probably just a reference to the land from with which Judas comes. Uh, who betrayed him? It could be translated this way. Who, uh, who handed him over? Or uh, we'd say, who sold him down the river? <laughs> you know, This is whom Jesus desired. Now remember, of course... But the fact is that even as Jesus calls these twelve, calls uh, Judas, who would betray him, Jesus, Jude, uh, Jesus knew exactly what Judas was going to do. How do we know that? Well, we know that from the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. We read these words where Jesus is speaking uh, to his disciples and he says, But there are some of you... As he speaks, then there are some of you who do not believe. And then John adds this, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Later, John says, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Do you know what this means? This means that even as Jesus gathers twelve to establish uh, his, his, his new covenant community, he's, he's reestablishing, his con- constituting his people, the church, 
And even as he does so, he, he brings close to him one he already knows is going to betray him over to death. Said J.I. Packer, to know that nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless, but it stabilizes the saints. Jesus knew that day that this man would betray him to death. Said A.W. Pink, God is working out his eternal purpose, not only in spite of human and satanic opposition, but by means of them. Said J.C. Ryle, the hands of the wicked cannot stir one moment before God allows them to begin. And they cannot stir one moment after God commands them to stop. Said J. Gresham, wicked men may not think they are serving God's purposes, but they are serving his purposes all the same. Even by the most wicked of their acts. And here, right here, when Jesus even calls his disciples, we're given this, this amazing glimpse already of how Jesus would, in fact, save his people from their sins in the eternal, sovereign, glorious, mysterious, merciful plan of God. Even at the beginning, Jesus draws close to him the one he knew who would betray him. He is the, he's the sovereign God. Jesus is the one who will one day die as a result of that man's sin. So, here we have such as these. These are the twelve that Jesus drew to himself, wrote William Hendrickson. What points up the greatness of Jesus is that he took such men as these, welded them into an amazingly influential community that would prove to be not only a worthy link with Israel's past, but also a solid foundation for the church's future. Remember the book of Colossians says that um, uh, he's building his church upon the foundation of the apostles. These men. With all their faults and foibles. Says Hendrickson, even when we leave out Judas Iscariot and concentrate only on the others, we can't fail to be impressed with the majesty of the Savior whose drawing power, incomparable wisdom, and matchless love were so astounding that he was able to gather around himself and to unite, listen to this, and to unite into one family men of entirely different, at times even opposite, backgrounds and temperaments. And he continues, of course, to do the same uh, today. These men. Called to be with him. To soak in who Jesus is. Called and appointed to, to go out to serve him. To represent him in the world. And even in this passage we note uh, that we are also compelled uh, to uh, respond to what's going on here. Then he went home. Verse 20. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Sounds familiar. We've read this before. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Again, Jesus in his ministry, 
Uh, here the Bible stayed. Uh, they had trouble finding time to sleep. The crowds were so, so great, could, could hardly get a bite of food. Because so many folks were flocking to Jesus. When his family heard it, uh, his family, the word for family there means those from the side of him. That is, those closest to him. So some translated friends or relatives, but family makes good sense in light of what will happen later in this passage. And so the Bible says his family comes to him. Where? Well, they would have came to him from Nazareth, the hometown. And the Bible says they come out to seize him. It means to get a possession of Jesus, to be the master of Jesus, to take hold of Jesus. They're coming to take him uh, by force. It's the same word that's used when Herod arrests John the baptizer. It's the same word that's used when Jesus is arrested at the end of the Gospel of Mark. It's the same word that's used when Paul is seized in Acts 24. It's the same word that's used uh, when the dragon in Revelation is seized. And so the family comes and, and they get a hold of why. What do they see? Well, they see, their, they see Jesus. He's got this urgent desire to minister to people. He's not eating and sleeping properly. He's being overwhelmed by the, by the crowds. Later we'll see Jesus' response to his family. But what does the family of Jesus here think of him at this point? And all that they have, the Bible says, heard. Are they praising God? No. Are they believing and rejoicing in what is happening? No. In fact, John 7, verse 5 will say, Even his, even his brothers uh, did not... Believe in him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. It, does, it means exactly that. It means to be insane. It means to be out of your senses. To not know what you're doing. To be so... so that They must have thought he was so caught up in something. He, he wasn't thinking properly. Why are you doing this? I remember the, uh, remember the first time I was invited to uh, lead a worship service in my home congregation in Ontario, Canada. In college, I was training for the ministry and uh, in the same church where I had uh, grown up many years, uh, they asked if I would lead the, the service. And so I got up to lead that service and I think they saw, I'm thinking they're seeing somebody who they used to see, you know, sitting in the back row of church, uh, tuned out, indifferent, jean jacket, you know, leather jacket in my day. Uh, tuned out to the service completely. I'm sure there were some folks in that in, in my home church there as I got up to lead a service. They must have wondered, what's going on here? <laughs> but that would have been understandable in that case because they knew me before. But here is Jesus. They knew him. And they knew he never told a lie. Makes me think of the Chronicles of Narnia and where... Uh, Lucy's being doubted by her family. Remember, and the professor says, well, has Lucy ever lied before about anything? You know, she says she's gone in this wardrobe and into this land of Narnia. Has she ever lied before? And they have to say, well, no. But they still didn't believe her. But this is, this is Jesus, their, their brother. Many had been healed, transformed by his ministry. To be sure, crowds were surging around him. Family was unsure, clearly not understanding themselves, obviously not believing his words themselves. Instead, they just, they just chalk it up to, he doesn't know what he's doing, he's out of his mind. Just like Governor Festus would say to the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul stood before him and testified to Jesus that he was... Raised from the dead. And, and Governor Festus says, uh, Paul, I think you lost your mind. 
What's the point? Friends, the life and work of Jesus demands some kind of explanation. We've already heard the Pharisees, they had one. I know what needs to happen here. He needs to die. Let's destroy him. <laughs> this Jesus that we're reading about in the Gospel of Mark. We've heard other responses. Uh, we've heard the responses of the demons. We know who, they, who he is, but we hate him. Or we fear him, but we certainly don't love him. And here we have the response of the family. Well, this is, this is, this is just all crazy. You know, the world says Jesus was mad. Missionaries are mad. You ever hear about David Brainerd? American missionary to Native Americans. Just gave his life. Died at 29. Heard of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint. Three other men fly, fly into the Alka India settlement in the 50s. I think it was in a headline in Time magazine when they died. They went into their unknown tribe. They all were speared to death. The world says they're crazy. Christians are mad too. To worship and serve this Jesus. To uh, raise their children in their homes, in their schools. Uh, to know Him, love Him, believe in Him, and be willing, uh, in fact, to give their life for Him. Christians are, are mad. However, hold on, however, if Jesus truly is the Savior, wouldn't the only sane thing to do be to give your all to Him? What if what Jesus says about being the Son of God and the Savior and the Lord is true? And what if He is the way, the truth, uh, and the life who loves and saves and keeps and holds us by His grace? Then, in fact, isn't it those who... Isn't it those who refuse to bow the knee and worship Him, the One who is truly out of their mind. Amen. In fact, we can say that because Jesus said it. We read it at the beginning of this service. Maybe you didn't catch it because we read it so often. But that's actually what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26. He said, For what? What will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul, for whoever would save his life for my sake will find it. Whoever would save his life will lose it. You see, it's actually the only sane thing to do to put your hope and trust in Jesus. Said Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And said another, I love this one, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ 
will last, you see. A disciple is called to fellowship, appointed to serve and respond in faith, worship, and service of the Savior. May that be you today, and may that, may that be me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, Lord. We thank you that being a Christian is not simply about what we do. It's about being with Jesus. He desires to have us with him in his presence, to know him, to learn from him, to love him, to, to know his love for us. And then having been with him, Lord, you send us out. We are witnesses to you. We all, Lord, have a pulpit from which we preach. It is our life. And so, Lord, we pray today that we would be preaching the true gospel from our life. That even if we were to gain the whole world and not have Christ, that would be no life at all. But that when we give up all for the sake of Jesus, uh, we have all we will ever need in the person of the Son, our Savior, who holds us fast to himself, no matter what the world might say. Help us to know him even today and to go out to represent him in all his glory, in all his beauty, to the watching world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.